Welcome to all of you watching this video or listening to this iPod message. My name is David Thompson from the Fraser Valley. For those that are new and have never heard any of my messages, I just briefly want to make you aware of what I'm about to share as to where I'm coming from with what I'm about to share. I do not prepare hardly anything in my messages. I trust the Holy Spirit of God to speak through me. There's a scripture in 2 Peter chapter 4 that says, addressing to the early church through the Apostle Peter, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. And so that's what I will seek to do. I will seek to allow the Spirit of God to rise up and come forth through me to speak what he would say to you as an individual who in the foreknowledge of God has come across absorbing this message and also to the corporate body of Christ. In my endeavor to seek to speak what God is really wanting to say in this particular hour and time in history, by his spirit to you and to the corporate body of Christ and whoever else. I facilitate this also by the casting of lots on the Bible, where there's an equal chance for any particular chapter to be brought forth. I do not do this lightly. If I did, it wouldn't work. I do not do this with sin in my life, or it wouldn't work. Anyone that willfully is in sin or is doing something lightly would be practicing divination. But I do this with complete faith in the sovereignty of God. And his power by his spirit to direct and lead his people. And of course, there are many scriptures in the Word of God that bring this out and verify this practice. The casting of lots was practiced by the Church of Israel before the time of Christ. It was practiced by the early church. It was practiced by powerful movements of revival throughout church history. Such as the Moravians. The way one allows the Spirit of God to rise up through them in order to minister as the oracles of God is by being in a conscious state of worship, seeking to hear while you're speaking what the Spirit is wanting to say and speaking that message. There's a scripture that says, in Revelations chapter 19, as John is about to fall down before the angel in awe of the angel, the angel says to him, See thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren the prophets. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The spirit of prophecy comes out of a conscious relationship of fellowship with God, where out of that worship, the spirit of God can rise forth and come out of your mouth and carry you beyond yourself into the words of God. And I will seek to facilitate that today. 
And so I want to share with you the scriptures that I have received in the last week, as there's a very clear theme coming through those scriptures. The theme chapter that I decided to share from, which I received yesterday, pardon me, that I received today, was Isaiah 55. And so I will read this passage of scripture. And then I want to relate to you the other passages I received in this last week, because there is a very clear theme that is coming out, which is often, if not always, the case. I really don't know any time where it hasn't been, and even times where I haven't noticed it, as I began to preach, a theme came forth that knit the various chapters together. So first of all, I want to read Isaiah chapter 55. Isaiah 55. O every one that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, he that hath no money. Come ye, buy and eat. Yea, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Wherefore do ye spend money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which satisfieth not? Hearken diligently unto me, and eat that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. Incline your ear and come unto me, hear, and your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. Behold, I have given him for a witness to the people, a leader and a commander to the people. Behold, thou shalt call a nation that thou knowest not, and nations that knew not thee shall run unto thee, because the Lord thy God, because of the Lord thy God, for the Holy One of Israel, for he hath glorified thee. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain cometh down and the snow from heaven, and returneth not thither, but watereth the earth, and maketh it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, 
and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. For ye shall go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth before you into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the fir tree, and instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree. And it shall be to the Lord for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Father God, as this message now goes forth, I ask that people would truly see you and not me, that I would be hidden, that I would speak out of the true fear of God and humility in a baptism of your love, that your word would come forth and have free course and be glorified even as it describes it coming forth in this chapter, Lord. That by your Holy Spirit of truth, you would teach me even as I am speaking those things that I've never seen and that these people need to hear and that the body of Christ needs to hear. For this very urgent and dark hour before the time of great tribulation upon the earth. Amen and amen. Before I go into this passage of scripture, I want to point out what God was directing to this week by his sovereign power, whose omnipresence is attached in total omniscience, that is knowledge, to every particle of existence and knows thereby the end from the beginning. I received on this last Saturday, which is a while back, Hosea chapter 8. And one of the things that happened to Israel in Hosea chapter 8 is mentioned in the first part of the chapter, and I won't go into it right now, except to touch on it. They counted the great things of God's law a strange thing. Oh, they were great at building magnificent temples for God and for them to worship in. But they perverted the image of God in their heart, which eventually resulted in an outward manifestation of idolatry as well in golden calves that they worshipped in this particular chapter. Oh, they also made idols out of their material wealth that God blessed them with. But the thing they trusted in more than anything in this particular chapter of Hosea was the calf of Samaria. It makes me recall the other calf that the nation of Israel worshipped. 
before Mount Sinai in the giving of the Ten Commandments, when they began to count God a strange thing as well and Moses, because for such a long time there was no manifestation of his return. And so they formed a calf. Well, I want to go into that a little later. I just want to briefly touch on these things first and how they relate to the chapter I just read which emphasizes the danger in trusting in our own ways and our own thoughts so that we go in the direction of our own imagination, which is an idolatrous direction. On Monday, I received Ephesians 5. And it says in Ephesians 5, in the first six verses, particularly in one verse, it, it basically says this, though. It says, to walk in love as Christ loved us requires that we walk in holiness as saints without covetousness or covetous motivations, which have practiced are idolatrous and lead to losing one's salvation. It says in Ephesians that covetousness is idolatry. So I'm just touching upon this. It emphasizes having victory over the deception of corruption in Ephesians, which is typified in falling into sleep when one should be awake. Sleep representing death and corruption instead of being in the light. And it says, Awake thou that sleepest, arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. And then on Tuesday, I received Deuteronomy chapter 4. Where there's an emphasis that we should take heed to ourselves that we do not set up an image in our hearts that becomes our focus instead of the Lord. Even if that is a distorted view of who the Lord is, which is idolatrous. It is when we learn to fear the Lord all our days that we are kept from the deception of idolatry. And so it says in Deuteronomy 4.10, for example, the last part of that verse, and I will make them hear my words that they may learn to fear me all the days that they shall live upon the earth. Then on December the 3rd, I received when, uh, on Wednesday, Luke chapter 6. And in this chapter, there is an emphasis on being merciful, like the Father is merciful to us. And maybe with this, I'll just read the rest of the summation of what is in Luke 6 that I wrote out here in brief notes, because all I do is spend a half hour in each chapter and make some brief notes in that half hour and then usually immediately after I preach. This, in this case, I had to do some things today, so I'm preaching later on Isaiah 55. But anyhow, in Luke 6 here, what I said is this, those that use the word of God and the law of God's word by twisting its intent and meaning to control people instead of showing mercy and doing good to them are those that give evidence of an idolatrous 
misplaced heart that is only outwardly submitted to God. We are to show God's mercy by loving our enemies and returning good for their evil to us. The evidence of a genuine heart relationship with God is that there is good fruit. And that's the kind of fruit that can love our enemies. For it says in God's words, when a man's ways please the Lord, even his enemies are made to be at peace with him. Now going back to Isaiah 55. Verse 1. Ho, every one that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. And he that hath no money, come, buy. And eat, yea, come. Buy wine and milk without money and without price. This is a call of God through the spirit of his prophet Isaiah, through the Holy Spirit, through the prophet Isaiah to the nation of Israel to come back to the Lord from which they have gone astray. The things that quench our thirst for God, for what is ultimately real, that will ultimately satisfy are the temporal fulfillments around us that we become caught up with and seek to justify as somehow godly and acceptable. Christ said, whoever believes from their heart with their life into me, and I'm amplifying it a bit, I admit. Out of his river, out of his heart, shall flow rivers of living water. Whoever with their, with, believes with their life into me, out of their innermost being, shall flow rivers of living water. This is speaking about their innermost being partaking of communion with the Spirit of God that is typified as living waters that flow from the very presence of God. I happened to see a video the other day when I was reviewing my website at ultimatemeaning.com and I don't know what kind of hooked me to look at it because it was late and I really should have gone to bed. And I'd seen the account before just as a testimony, but this was a reenactment of an atheist that had traveled around the world. And you can watch it on my website. It's on the slider at the very front. It's the second one on the slider. This atheist who didn't believe in God, that believed in evolution and all of these things. And, but he did have a mother that believed in God and prayed for him. 
but he was just traveling around the world and enjoyed the pleasure of going to these exotic islands and swimming and diving with the natives and catching various things. And basically what happened with him was that when he was swimming one night, he was stung by a box jellyfish, which can kill a person. If you're stung by them, you usually die. But he wasn't only stung once, he was stung by a total of five. And so he was dying and they could hardly get him out of the boat. And it's a long story, but basically what happened is people thought he was drunk and laughed at him. And he began to hold on forgiveness towards them and thought, boy, if I had the strength right now, would I ever like to take these people out and so on. And But somehow, eventually, he ended up getting into the hospital. But by that time, he was already starting to die. And then he became very desperate. And he said, God, if there's a God. And and as he's dying, he sees his mother vividly before him, praying for him, who's still alive. And the Lord's Prayer coming before him is very vivid words. And then the two men that mocked him and thought he was drunk... God said, are you willing to forgive them? In the Lord's Prayer, it says, forgive us even as we forgive others. And he was shocked. But somehow, he didn't even know how to pray. He started to pray the Lord's Prayer in his weakness as he's fading away. And he actually prayed for God and said, I forgive them and forgive me. Then he's in the hospital and they're trying to desperately bring him to life, but he dies on the bed. And he finds himself in another dimension that's so real he didn't even know he left his body. And he's thinking they turned the lights out in the hospital. But he's in the place of darkness. And then he sees demonic entities telling him, you're in hell. And uh, he's shocked. But just at that moment, because he prayed that genuine prayer, he's taken out of that realm of darkness and goes up into a tunnel of light and stands before God where there's such incredible love that goes through him that he says you can't describe it in the light so bright beyond comprehension. He said another one that he taught when he was talking about this, he said it was almost like, in fact, it was probably true. There was such energy and light coming out of the countenance of God and out of his mouth that it was like worlds and galaxies were being created before him. Basically what happened, God gave him the opportunity to stay there and showed him how beautiful it was and the paradise that was there, showed him beautiful creations of a totally pure and perfect world. And that said, do you want to stay or do you want to go? And then the Lord showed him his mother. And when he saw his mother, as much as he wanted to stay, he went back. Now, he had a deep conversion experience through that and has totally devoted his life to God. But why am I sharing that? Because he is a good example of what is described in this chapter of someone trying to find satisfaction in the temporal pleasures of this life. The way I summed up this first these first three verses here, which I'm 
on. I said this, those that are truly thirsty will seek that which truly satisfies and is good and will diligently hearken to God in order to eat it. If we incline the ear of our heart onto the Almighty's one, Elohim, or the Lord Jesus Christ, we will draw near to God by seeking him and actually hear the speaking of Elohim that will cause our soul to live. It is then that God will make an everlasting covenant of his mercies toward us as he did with King David. I want to explain the name of God for those that may be from a totally unfamiliar background to the word of God. First, I want to define the word truth. The word truth basically means that which is real or reality, if you look it up in different dictionaries. And then if you look up in various dictionaries what reality means, it means that which is unchangeable, indestructible, and everlasting. And it is reality that satisfies the very core of who we were, who we are. Because we were created in the image of God to only find completeness and satisfaction in God. Now, the name of God in the Bible, one of the names is Yahweh, or another way of saying it is Yehovah. Now, I'm not here to get into the details of all about that. The more accurate is probably Yahweh. The other one was later on developed. But it basically means the self-existent one. The word self-existence has the understanding of ultimate reality. And then we have the other understanding of God as well, where his name is mentioned as I am that I am. In Hebrew, it goes like this, Ahiya asher ahiya, I am that I am. And that's how God describes himself in the time before Christ in the very first scriptures and throughout the Bible as well as in the New Testament, Jesus Christ said, I am that I am. Now I use the word Elohim here, which is also a very common name. That is basically the word, it is the plural of almighty. See, in Genesis 1, when God says, let us, make man in our image. It is a plurality of one God. Does that mean that we believe in three gods? No. 
Now, it may seem like I'm being sidetracked from Isaiah 55 in explaining all of this about the name of God, but I feel it is very important for those that are new to take some brief time to just explain this. In order to build a good foundation so that, they, so that this can be brought forth by the Spirit of God. Elohim basically means almighty in the plural sense, in the sense that it says it in Genesis, let us make man in our image. It is God speaking to himself in plurality. And here's the understanding behind that. Not three individual different gods. For God to be truly almighty, to be truly God, requires that he govern all the ultimate the ultimate aspects of ex existence or dimensions of existence and that is this that which is beyond time and space the creation which is in the time and space realm and filling all space god is perceived as the father in government as beyond time and space, as being the originator and seeing the end from the beginning in a realm beyond time and space. Even the understanding of Father is one that has experienced through time and of one that is the originator. <clears throat> For God to truly be God, he must be in personage beyond the time and space realm, in conscious ultimate intelligence and awareness. Of course, with his omniscience and omnipresence and omnipotence. For God to truly be God, he must also be in personage in creation or in the time and space realm. The word son represents God in government in the time and space realm. The word son has the clear understanding of being the full expression of the source or of the father. Jesus Christ is called the full expression of the father in Hebrews 1, chapter 1, verse 3. And so for God to be truly God, he must also be in personage at the same time within the time and space realm. And for God to be truly almighty, to be truly God, he must also be in personage and omnipresence, filling all space as the Holy Spirit of God that is abiding in the government of God as the Father and the government of God as the Son. So there's the Holy Spirit of God in personage, in omnipresence with the Father beyond time and space, and the Son in the time and space realm. And so we have one God in three personages that in fact is only one God. Now I just explain that for those that think that, you know, believers believe in three gods and whatever else. But the essence and the nature of God, this is this Reality, the I am that I am. Reality being that which is indestructible, immutable. And here's what reality is. 
It is a quality that is able to contain unlimited life and unlimited power without being corrupted by it. And the only quality that could possibly be that way is love in ultimate perfection. And I define love this way. Love is not a robot. It is not some machine that gets its information from an input from an outside source. It is totally self-originating and free in choice. And that's the way God created us. He created us in his likeness. We are totally self-originating. Therein is the capacity to love. Therein is the capacity to have fellowship. As such, we are the source of our own action and we are self-responsible. When God created beings such as angels and then Lucifer, that angel fell, that didn't mean that God created evil. For we are the creators of our own des destiny because we have free self-origination. That is free choice. We create our own destinies by our own choices. And if we didn't have that, we wouldn't have the capacity to love. And so God also is self-originating and free in choice, but in his choices, he is always choosing the highest lasting good over any more immediate gratification or fulfillment. He always chooses the highest lasting good onto ultimate good who is God himself, who he is. But he always, as such, God's love has a state of being that is totally pure. It ha he has integrity in his being that is so pure that he is a blazing fire of judgment against the slightest thought, word, or deed that would be contrary to choosing the highest lasting good, contrary to his being that chooses always chooses the highest lasting good over any more immediate, less than lasting perfect fulfillment. That is the defensive aspect of the being of God, who is love. It is the holiness of God. It is the quality that can contain unlimited life and unlimited power without being corrupted by it or allowing that power to go in a direction that is corrupt. And as such, this quality, the holiness of God, the integrity of his love, is the foundation for him to be creative without corruption that is ever expanding in enlargement and in creativity to greater and greater realms of fulfillment. I won't go into more, much more than that. Now, the other aspect of God's being that is ultimate reality, that is that quality that can contain unlimited life and power without corruption, and therefore is indicative of him being the very source, the life source of all existence, is that his being that is so blazing and pure in this love that devours and judges all that is contrary to it, out of that is the foundation. For, as I said, 
creativity without corruption that can ever enlarge in fulfillment. And that is ultimately expressed that this love is so pure that without violating its integrity that requires judgment, it can create an assured destiny to the creation. If God could not create with purpose an assured destiny to creation, it would imply that he is imperfect. Now, I won't go into the details of this. The fact that we have free will is obviously not attributed to God, but to ourselves when we make choices against his will. But here's the important thing I want to bring out. There is the foundation, which is the being of God in his integrity, that is his holiness. And out of that, which represents a negative in electricity, which is a horizontal line that can represent foundation or cutting off that which is destructive. The second law of thermodynamics in science is a destructive principle that is observed in the whole universe, which is this, that anything left on its own always goes in the direction of disorder to total destruction. And so God will cut off those that go against his love and against his being. And when they're left on their own, there is a principle of corruption that goes in the direction of complete destruction over time. And this can represent the negative symbol in electricity. So now we're looking at the ultimate negative, which is really a great positive. Because it's out of this foundation that there is such a purity in God's love that without violating the integrity of his love, he has the moral capacity to take the, your judgment that you deserve because of your rebellion against God upon himself by humbling himself more than you, a mere creature, and suffering more than you, a mere creature, which he did in Jesus Christ, which is his one, which is God manifest in the flesh, the one and only Son of God. Oh, I could go into a lot more in sharing about this, how Christ was tempted just as we are without sin and was obedient right to the death on the cross, and in that took the first man, Adam, that sinned, and as it were through his obedience, took him and nailed him to the cross so that he, as the second and new Adam, could dwell in us when we repent and ask him to forgive us for our sins. And truly receive his provision of mercy. Only God could live a perfect and a holy life that could be a perfect substitute for our sin. Only God himself could possibly absorb the judgment that creation deserved that rebelled against him upon himself and yet not break his link in union with the Father in taking that judgment upon himself which is evident in the fact that he rose from the dead. And so we read in Romans 1.4 that it was by the spirit of holiness that Christ rose from the dead. And that is because when he was on the cross, 
He always trusted the Father. Even when he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He still trusted in the Father. That link was never broken. He said, into thy hands I command my spirit. He was always in a state. His spirit, his soul, was in a state like an open hand, representing selflessness, representing loving submission unto the Father. A state of selflessness that is totally pure in relation to the Father. This is the spirit of holiness it's talking about in Romans 1.4 when it says that he rose by the spirit of holiness. Now, that's a lot to share. Now let me get back to Isaiah 55. I've been preaching for three quarters of an hour possibly. But that's okay. Because I want to get to the message and what God is wanting to say now to the overall body of Christ, not only to those that I've just shared with that are new. In this passage, in verse 1, he's calling for God's people to find what really satisfies, which is this living water that is his spirit that can dwell with them in fellowship so that they really know him in fellowship. And it's likened unto drinking water. It's free. You don't have to pay. You don't have to earn it. It's likened unto being able to be totally satisfied, like wine satisfies and food satisfies, and it's yet without price. And yet here people are. They're going all over the place, trying to satisfy the inner core of their being, but they can't satisfy it. That vacuum within us was made to only be fi find completeness and fulfillment in God. It is a God-shaped vacuum. This man I mentioned that went around the world trying to satisfy the inner core of his being. He finally found reality. He finally found what is truly fulfilling. I'll tell you what it's like when you don't have fellowship and you, you can't drink of what's reality. You can't have reality as the core of your being. It's like a black hole in outer space that is continually pulling everything into itself, trying to satisfy the void that is there. But the more that happens, the more it pulls in everything around it in a destructive way. And those that choose to go their own way in rebellion against the truth, because they're seeking to find satisfaction in the temporal baits of this world that can be used by greater powers than them to manipulate and destroy their lives. They end up coming to a place either where they harden their heart and choose to worship the devil or they realize the emptiness of their life. And like the prodigal son, become loathes at, their, at the deceptions in their own life, loathed at the deceptions of people around them that have promised them fulfillment in different belief systems and whatever else. So that all they want now is what is 
ultimately trustworthy, which is that which is ultimately real. And so there's a thirst in them, a thirst that causes them to cry out and say, where is the truth? God, if there's a God, show yourself to me. I want reality. I want destiny in my life. And then, when that cry comes from the heart, out of genuine thirst for reality, God will hear that cry, and they will find him. And they will realize when they're truly open to the truth because finally there's a thirst that has made them open because of the delusion being exposed in the emptiness of their lives. They will realize the only thing that is ultimately trustworthy, that is really facing reality and is truly satisfying could only be in a God that's love is so pure that he requires in the integrity of his love absolute judgment upon them. They deserve hell. But if that was all God was and he didn't have the capacity within his being to become a perfect atoning sacrifice to assure mercy to those that repent, to assure forgiveness to those that repent, they could never trust because they would never have the assurance of forgiveness and destiny. And so when a person comes to a place of openness to truth, they recognize that reality is this ultimate negative and positive, as it were, for sake of illustration, the negative, the holiness of God, the positive, the great condescension of God's love and perfect atoning sacrifice that was ultimately revealed in Jesus Christ upon the cross, the very and one only Son of God. And before that time, from the very beginning, they recognize the same message, that there is one God and that he has provided a way of forgiveness to those that would repent and turn back to them, bearing the fruit of repentance, trusting in his mercy to forgive them. They offered innocent lambs, a symbol of their sin being placed on the lamb as they laid their hand on it. Innocent animals. Jesus Christ is called the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Now in this passage of scripture, we read this. Wherefore do you spend money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which satisfieth not? Hearken diligently unto me, and eat ye that which is good. So when we come to the place where we really hearken diligently, that motivation to hearken diligently comes out of a desperate, genuine thirst for reality. That's only what can motivate us to come to that place of diligent openness of heart to hear. Then you will eat that which is good and let your soul, then your soul can do Delight in what is truly fulfilling. Let your soul delight itself in fatness. And then in verse 3, incline your ear and come unto me. Hear and your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. So it's talking about inclining the ear of our heart, coming unto him and hearing, and our soul will live. 
The everlasting covenant is the sure mercies of David. Now in this passage, I want to now tie in the other passages that I briefly mentioned. I mentioned Hosea chapter 8. And it's probably a good thing to turn to Hosea chapter 8. I don't have much of a mark or anything here, but so what, a little bit more time. So I just want to turn briefly to Hosea chapter 8 and point out some of the verses in Hosea chapter 8 that stand out. Verse 4. They have set up kings, but not by me. They have made princes, and I knew it not. They've made the material things around them the focus of their lives. There was a time when Israel had a relationship with God and God could entrust them with material blessings, but now they've fallen away. And I'm just going to go on here in this passage and just point out a few things. It says in this passage that they counted the great things of God's law a strange thing. That's probably in verse 12. I'll take a look. Yes, verse 12. I have written to him the great things of my law, but they were counted as a strange thing. I want to point out something about this, about counting a law a strange thing. There's a principle here. Cain was offended at the holiness of God. The consequences of God's holiness resulted in much suffering. It had resulted in having to work hard in the land to have food to eat and so on. And I believe Cain was offended at the holiness of God. So he began to look at God, withdraw from God in his heart. He may have totally believed in his mind in God, but there was a withdrawal in his heart. And so now he began to perceive God as an enigma, as a strange thing, as someone that is very holy and masterful and requires much and is demanding. But he lost sight of the goodness of God. You see, there's an understanding I want to bring out here about the holiness of God, that is the integrity of God's love that requires judgment. It is out of the holiness of God that is held unlimited power and unlimited life in a direction that is without corruption and fully constructive unto greater and greater fulfillment. Therefore, out of the holiness of God, comes wholeness, because only in that is there goodness. Goodness is unlimited power and unlimited life in a direction that is without corruption, that is growing in greater constructivity unto greater fulfillment.
That's what goodness is, and it's only possible for it to be contained in the integrity of this love that will not tolerate the slightest contrary to it. That is a blazing fire of love that consumes all that would be contrary to love in judgment and an eternal hell that would rebel ultimately against and would not receive the mercy of God through Jesus Christ. This love is what brings forth destiny for people as individuals. The holiness of God contains this, it contains reality, it contains goodness, it contains wholeness. It is out of the holiness of God that issues wholeness or completeness or fulfillment. And out of that wholeness comes beauty. God is the very source of beauty. You see so many things in creation that are so beautiful, a beautiful wife that makes you want to just want to sing to her and tell her how beautiful she is or whatever it is. Beautiful scene or whatever. But God is the very source of beauty because he is the very source of holiness that brings forth the wholeness that emanates the beauty. But as much as that is true, we can become offended at the consequences of the holiness of God. When we see tragedy all around us because of the free choice of us as individuals and others in rebellion against God, that ultimately started with the rebellion of Lucifer and then the fall of Adam and Eve. But God has a plan that is far greater than all of this. And oh, I could talk for a long time and all this, but I would get off topic and I'd be talking here for six hours, which I could easily do. But Israel forgot her maker in Hosea 8. And they put their trust in other nations and they trusted in, they started to form their own idolatrous image of God out of their motivations to try to find fulfillment in natural things around them, such as their silver and their gold. They wanted to justify an immoral lifestyle in rebellion against the laws of God that come out of the being of his love that are on to life. And so... They formed in this chapter in Hosea chapter 8 golden calves. They combined the worship of the one true God with the idols that were around them, them and the surrounding nations. And in that they destroyed the image of the one true God, which is the integrity of his love that requires judgment, out of which springs forth the power of God to assure 
forgiveness through perfect atoning sacrifice of himself. I can't go into all of that right here and explain it, but it's very clear that they understood that only God could forgive and cleanse sin and that only the the animal sacrifices could only cleanse the physical body to allow God's presence to dwell with them until Christ died on the cross. And in that, they did experience being born again of the Spirit from the very beginning of time. That's another topic. I mean, with people like Enoch and others, they truly knew intimacy with God. Abraham knew a deep, intimate relationship with God. As Christ said, you know him. In other words, you have fellowship with him, for he dwells with you and shall be with in you after I die on the cross. That's a passage in John around 14. Now, in this passage, there was a counterfeit sanctuary that was set up by the king of Jerusalem, a counterfeit holy of holies. Instead of the cherubim in the true temple of Israel, they put up two golden calves in a different area because Israel was divided into the north and the south through the rebellion that happened. And those two golden calves were ranged to form the base of a counterfeit mercy seat, a counterfeit mercy. And over the years, the visible presence of the calves became familiar to the Israelites who were soon worshiping the calves as God. And I want to point out to you that the same thing happened at Mount Sinai. It seemed like God had withdrawn there was Moses, he was up on the mountain for such a long time, not coming down and they're wondering where he is. So they begin to conclude, we'll form our own God. We'll form our own image of God that will allow us to justify the things that we are thirsting for, that we want satisfaction in of this life. Now I'm not able to go into this in any depth here, but I want to share this. That when we have times in our lives where it seems that God's far away, that is the time when we can begin to form an idolatrous image of God in our heart and become offended and wonder why it seems that God is not interested in us and even seems to be against us. But if we have the true, genuine fear of God, we will never allow that doubt to come into us so that we buy into it. When Eve bought into the doubt that was suggested to her at the temptation, at that moment, she no longer perceived God as ultimately trustworthy. She no longer had a perception of God as totally pure in love that required judgment and that could be transcended and show mercy. Of course, that was before he had, she had sinned. So it's a little different then, but there's no time to go into the details of that. I do write about these things in my book that's coming up. Maybe six months or a year from now. Possibly three. And what I want to share about this 
is that the fear of God is a choice to choose to recognize God for who he truly is in his holiness and in his transcendence out of that holiness and mercy. To assure to you as an individual forgiveness if you repent and receive his atoning sacrifice. Truly repent. So even Eve lost the fear of God, and I won't go into it. And that's what happens and happened at Mount Sinai. They took on their own ways and their own thoughts. I'm just going to point out that in Isaiah 55 here, we have a clear clarification of all of what I've been sharing. So I'm going to go back to Isaiah 55 here and share this now. I don't have my little computer thing on me right now, so I'm just doing it by hand. Isaiah 55. And I want to point out some of the things that are in Isaiah 55 in closing, in the last part here. If we start at verse 4 in Isaiah 55, it says, Behold, I have given him. <clears throat> it was talking about how that if we truly hunger and thirst after God, what takes away our hunger and thirst after God is the deception to thirst after other things that aren't ultimate reality, that don't really satisfy, but that lie to us that they will satisfy us. There's a verse in Jonah that says, those that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. And when we buy into lying vanities, we do set up imaginations in our heart and an image in our heart that is idolatrous and then results in a deceptive self-projection of even one true God that is indeed not one true God. And we begin to have an image of God that is likened unto these calves in this sense. The calf represents a God that is full of grace and that will accept you just as you are. Yes, a God that is not a God of judgment. I even heard some charismatic, charismatic leaders actually make this statement and say, God's not a God of judgment. What do you mean? It says in Isaiah that God is a God of judgment. Look up the verse. God is a God of judgment. Yes, he is a God of judgment. But when we begin to have a perception of God that does not have any integrity in his love or purity in his love that requires judgment on sin, that is severe against sin, then we have a false image of God. So we have a God that's so full of grace that he'll accept us even in our sin. Oh, it does say in the word of God, he that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. But don't use that verse to justify sin because you can only come to God if there's repentance in your heart and if you are deceiving yourselves to think that God will accept you without genuine desire to repent in your heart, you are wrong. You are deceiving yourself. The only ones that are coming to God are the ones that are coming with repentance in their heart. If there isn't repentance in your heart, you're justifying rebellion and deception against God. 
And so we set up a calf, a golden calf in our heart that justifies almost any kind of lifestyle without consequence. Are we not living in a culture today that is delusional? You know, it says in John that the devil is a liar and the father of it. He's the father of delusion. And it also says that he is a murderer, a hater. And those that harden their hearts against the holiness of God and refuse to recognize that they can repent and can receive forgiveness and rather have a distorted image of God as controlling and demanding and do not recognize the goodness behind the holiness of God and that God is full of mercy to those that repent are only seeking to feed the black hole in their soul that is leading them in a direction to total darkness and being cut off from the very source of life and of love where there's torment that is worse than any of the physical torment of this world that goes on forever and ever. According to many that have died that you can watch, they bear witness to that. Those that really recognize the holiness of God recognize how much they deserve the judgment of God so that they cry out for mercy. It is out of a true, genuine fear of God where we truly recognize God for who he is that we see the greatness of God's mercy to us and therein see the greatness of his love to us personally to forgive us the moment we cry out to him and say, I repent, I give my life to you, I will not live this way again. I will make you the center of my life. In this chapter, in Isaiah chapter 55, he's talking about making a covenant, even the sure mercies of David. Now, I want to just share what I put here about verses 4 to 5. And it says, Behold, thou shalt call a nation that thou knowest not, and nations that knew not thee shall run unto thee, because of the Lord thy God, for the Holy One of Israel, for he hath glorified thee. What I say concerning those verses is this. God is saying that even as he gave King David as a commander and a leader to the nation of Israel, he will also give the body of Christ and the nation of Israel such indwelling glory from God that nations will run unto them that they did not even know because they want the same relationship with God as Israel. When you come into a genuine relationship with God, where you make Jesus Christ the Lord and the Savior of your life, where there's a true cry from your heart, a true circumcision in your heart that breaks the hardness and the deception of pride. Then the presence of God comes to dwell in you as living waters and his glory begins to manifest in you so that people know you're different. They know you have something that's so attractive and good that they want to find out what you have so they can have the same relationship with God that you have. And that's what God is saying is going to happen in the last days to those that have a genuine relationship with God. Even to the nation of Israel, they will come into a place where they as a nation will be born again. It's described in Zechariah chapter 12, where it says it's a prophecy given hundreds of about 700 years before the time of Christ, where it says this, 
It's God speaking, and he says, they will look on me whom they have pierced. That's in Zechariah 12. It's a prophecy when the nation of Israel in the very last days will be surrounded by the nations and their military might will be broken and they will cry out in desperation to God to have mercy on them at that moment and he will return and reveal himself to them. And it says, they shall look on me whom they have pierced. And it takes a cornering in many people's lives of the judgment of God to bring them to the place of facing reality, of being open to truth, so that they cry from the depth of their heart and know the greatness of God's mercy to them personally. And then the glory of God will dwell in Israel in such a way as they're saved as a nation into relationship with God that all the nations will want to come into the same relationship as they see the glory of God coming down in their midst. This will also happen to the corporate body of Christ. Now, in this passage of Scripture, I will go on and just briefly mention the various things. It says, it says, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Do not allow yourself, when you hear a message like this, to think you can do it later. Your heart will be hardened, and you may, be, you may lose out your destiny forever in a place of torment, instead of the very opposite, where it says, I is not seen, nor ear heard, neither is entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for them that love him. It says here in verse 7, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. That's what you need to do. To forsake your way and your unrighteous thoughts that have set up an idol in your heart I talked way in the beginning about Ephesians and, and that was a tremendous passage which I could have preached on where it makes it clear that unless we walk in holiness as saints, we will not know what it is to walk in the love of Christ. And it makes it clear that covetousness, which is a grasping to fill the void in us with those things around us so that that's where our focus is, is idolatry. And it is the root of all forms of idolatry, including the one that happened to Israel where they made these golden calves representing the idolatrous, distorted image of God that they set up in their hearts to justify their own fulfillments in immorality, in that which is in rebellion against the love of God. And God says here in verse 8 in Isaiah 55, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Then he goes on. And he says, for as the rain cometh down and the snow from heaven and returneth not hither, but watereth the earth and maketh it bring forth and bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I send it. When we heed God's word 
and receive it into our heart. And the word, word means expression. And so we have Jesus Christ. It's a full expression of God the Father. And Christ said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And those before Christ came in the Father saw the holiness of God and the mercy of God and therein saw the expression of God to them and therein saw the Son and received forgiveness when they repented. And they came into a relationship with God. So what I want to read here is just the last part of what I just read in the scripture and the commentary I made. People and even God's people in apostasy are those that are trusting in their own ways and in their own thoughts in order to bring their own personal fulfillment and also national and corporate fulfillment. This is why there is no fulfillment individually and corporately. It is only God's word that can bring fulfillment and accomplishments as it is sent forth under the utterance of the Holy Spirit in his people. <clears throat> in closing, I want to share this. We are lit in the very last days, and the hour is urgent. And it is high time, as it says in Ephesians, the passage that I briefly commented on, it says, it says, awake, it says, arise from the dead and Christ shall give you light. But before that, it says this, awake out of your sleep. Arise from the dead and Christ shall give you light. The sleep there is speaking of corruption in our being that puts us into a place of insensitivity and unawareness of what is ultimately real and satisfying for our own personal destiny and for those around us. And also corporately as nations and corporate bodies of people. And what we need to do is choose to wake out of our sleep, out of the corruption of death, of sleep, and we will receive light, which gives life. This light of love that is so pure and so filled with mercy and forgiveness that can assure you as an individual a destiny that the Bible says like this, eye has not seen nor ear heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those that love him. Let's not be those that allow the delusions of this world to entrap us into eternal loss and torment. It's like the food we eat, a large portion of it goes into our body, but only a small portion passes through the filtering system to become a lasting part of our body, it passes through the intestines, representing the filtering system, the delusional systems of belief in this world that are not reality, that are not genuine love, that people put their identity in seeking to be their own God and independence of the very life source and love source of the universe. In the body of Christ, if we want to conquer our nation in this urgent hour that is so close to a time of great tribulation and judgment, God is calling his people to awaken out of their sleep 
And I just want to say this, the way you do it is when you have your corporate gatherings as the body of Christ, you need to repent of your own thoughts and your own ways. In, for example, self-control, where the leadership does not allow the members of the body to function in the gifts of the Spirit. They may complain that hardly any people pray. What you should be doing is making your meeting a prayer meeting where the leadership and everyone gets on their faces or on their knees before God and just is in utter awe before God and just still and in humility until they sense the melting and the breaking take place out of the awareness of whose presence they're in, the Almighty's one, Elohim, the I am that I am, Jesus Christ. And then, out of that comes pure worship. Out of that comes the genuine gifts of the Spirit moving through the body and moving through the leadership. We need to repent of divisiveness, of not being filled with God's love, of not receiving other believers as Christ received us because they believe a bit different or are a different persuasion. Repent of denominationalism. And if you as a body of believers repent of being denominational and you begin to really begin to seek God and to pray and to make God's house a house of prayer, you will come into a true unity and a baptism of God's love that's described in Ephesians 4, where it says that with all saints we will comprehend the height and the depth and the breadth of God's love and will be filled with all the fullness of God corporately so that his power and authority comes in and his presence comes down in glory that literally shakes all things that are shakable around this community you're in or this city so that it is conquered and your nation is conquered and multitudes come into the kingdom of God. It is God's strategy for this last hour, that his house be a house of prayer and that unto him be the gathering of the people. May we heed that call to conquer our nation, our communities, our cities, because there's only a few years left. Possibly. Before it's too late. Thank you for listening to this message. Look forward to serving you again out of the love of God.